So, what is the absolute, universal, unequivocal will of God? I think it was said best, maybe colloquially, by uh, uh, Rodney King when he said, can't we all learn to get along? What is the will of God? I'll tell you what the will of God is. And Jesus says it over and over, especially in the Gospel of John. Father, this is my prayer. My prayer is that all may be one, as you are with me and I am with you. That's the prayer of the Master. That's the prayer of Jesus. Union, unity, oneness. And, 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 and we have it echoed in the first reading today when, when Isaiah is saying, here's the house of God. When you hear the word house of God, it's a code word for, for the universe. If God is everywhere, then the house of God is everywhere. And it is a place for all peoples. No exceptions. Like the little bumper sticker that says, love everybody, no exceptions. There are no exceptions. And both our religion and the quantum physics of today tell us that, that this is a great reality. We are intimately connected, not just psychologically, but we are physically intimately connected to each other. We are really, truly one, but we, we don't know it. We don't see it. We're not aware of it. And it's exactly the same way with the, the deepest concerns of our hearts. Our hearts are all one. It's a wonderful story about the, the Dalai Lama who, who came to Greenland, I'm told, uh, got off the plane in Greenland, went to the tarmac, tapped on the microphone, he says, may I have your attention, please? May I have your attention? Nobody wants to suffer. Everybody wants to be happy. Thank you very much. Got on the plane and flew away. <laughs> now, if that's true, if that's a universal in every human being that has ever drawn birth on this breath on this earth, then, then here's the question. Why do we hate each other? David Brooks just wrote a, a, an article for The Atlantic where he asks questions that have been bothering him for the last 10 years. He says, why in the world are we so mad at each other? And why are we so un? happy, uh, especially since, since we share so much in common, since once we go below the surface, there's very little different that's, that, 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 that's true. Uh, I think the answer needs to be big because the question really is big. You know, when we're first born, uh, we... Uh, we're oceanic. We have no sense of who we have. We have, we have no identity. The identity that we have is, is given to us by, well, first our parents, and then our little family circle, and then the community, and then the church, and then the, and then the, the, the culture in, at large. And, and, and we take on many, many different identities as we, as we begin to grow up. And they really do serve us well. When we have a family identity, an ethnic identity, a cultural identity, a racial identity, a political identity, a religious identity. And each one of these identities 
separates us from someone else. We know who we are because we know who we are not. It's, it's a matter of, of separation and comparison. And so I know who I am when I separate myself from you. I have a stronger identity. And when I compare myself to you, so I'm a, I'm a, a, a man, uh, a boy, not, not a girl. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm Italian. I'm not Irish. Uh, I'm a little teacup short. I'm a little teapot short and stout. Here is my handle and here is my handle. <laughs> Son of a gun, I'm a teapot. How do we know who we are? The little, little boy goes up to the little girl and he says, he says, I'm a Presbyterian. And she says to him, and I belong to another abomination. We've got our little identities, and God forsake us if we ever cross the identities. Those of us who grew up in Chicago back in the late 40s and the early 50s knew that the world was divided between the Catholics and the publics, and you did not walk on the public side of the street. We knew who we were because we knew who we were not. We compared ourselves to those people. And of course, we were a little, we were going to heaven. We weren't quite sure about them. That's the whole identity question. It's, 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 it's the same for every group. The Crips and, and the Bloods, it's our territory. We wear our colors. Of course, our colors were Marian blue. We, we knew who we were because we knew who we were not. When you're a jet, you're a jet all the way from your first cigarette to your last dying day. Identity. They knew who they were because they knew who they were not. This tribal identity, I really believe, is part and parcel of what it means to be a human being. I think it's, it's in there right from the very beginning. As a matter of fact, it was Adam and Eve who, uh, who uh, said, you know what? After they heard that they could be separate from God because they could be equal to God, cut themselves off. And, 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 and now they had a right to decide who was good and who was bad, who was in and who was out. They had their little group, and they, they belonged to their wonderful little group, and all was well with them, except that it wasn't, except that it isn't. The, the, the problem is, once we get caught in our identity, whatever it may be, whether it's a political identity or a religious identity, we cannot see the other side at all. And I think we are never going to get out of this until we admit that we've got some biases. And the biases are really in there deep. And we all know what confirmation bias is. If they're saying something that I like, if I'm preaching to the choir, you go right on, you're really telling the truth. If I'm saying something that's going to really upset you, you're not going to hear a word I said. And you're going to honestly believe that what I said was not what I said. You know, they heard a podcast the other day where they were talking about James Comey, when James Comey, uh, in the first impeachment trial, made a statement about, about the Russian interference. A after he made the statement, and, and all the media had the transcripts in their hands. That night, after they read the transcripts, Fox News got on and says, this absolutely unequ unequivocally uh, redeems the president. All this says he was not guilty. And as soon as you flip the channel to MSNBC, 
they said, boy, is the president in trouble now. Now, both of them think they're telling the truth. But both of them are seeing it through a, a lens, a bias lens. And I think we need to own our biases, that we all have a lens through which we see reality. We've all got a, a point of view. And a point of view is a view from a point. But we're not seeing the whole picture. We're just seeing it from what has been given to us. You know, on January 6th, we turn on the television, and what did we see before our eyes? For many people, it was absolutely obvious what it was. It was a, a violent insurrection. And for other people, it was, uh, it was tourists uh, exercising their First Amendment right. How? And, and both of them, at some level, are convinced that there's truth. Now, there really is an objective truth, and of course, we are the ones who know what the objective truth is. That's our own bias. I, I say all of this because I think it's so deep and it's so impenetrable that until we begin to admit that it is there in us, that it's in me, I cannot grow. I cannot grow beyond it. I think we need incredibly strong foundations in our faith, in our, even in our politics, in, in, in all the institutions of our lives so that we can begin to transcend them. You know, the Dalai Lama said once that, that you need to know the rules perfectly. You need to know them by heart so that you can transcend them, so that you can ignore them rightly, break them properly. That's exactly what we're going to see both St. Paul and Jesus do today. Because they, too, have biases. St. Paul's bias was that he was an Orthodox Jew. And he was so biased by that when he saw them proclaiming the way, when he saw Stephen proclaim the way, he had no trouble with the people stoning him to death because he was a, a heretic. He was a rebel. He was outside. And then, and then, he fell to the ground and he was blinded by the light and he heard the voice of God saying, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you? Who are you? Well, I'm Jesus. I'm the Christ. I'm the one you're persecuting. And then he gave him his mission. And where was his mission? It wasn't to his own people. You see, the Jews were very special people. You know the famous couplet, how odd of God to choose the Jews? Well, they were the chosen people. And if they were the chosen people that God did for the Jews, what he didn't do for other people, what other nation has laws like we have? What other nation was led through the Red Sea as it parted and we walked in on dry ground? Now, they, they, the, theologically, they would say, well, that means that God has chosen us on behalf of the world. But no, what they really believed is that we were better than those people better than the Jebusites and the Hittites and the termites and everybody else that they were going after. Huh? And Paul believed that until, and it served him, uh, until, it doesn't, until it didn't serve him anymore, uh, until it was, until it was absolutely clear that he was called to bring those who were considered on the outside, inside. And of course, who in the world is on the outside, the Gentiles. The Gentiles is everybody else. The Gentiles is the publics. The Gentiles is the not me. The Gentile is the other. And he's being called to the others. And today he is utterly perplexed because he's calling to the Gentiles the new way and the Gentiles are believing it 
and his own people, the chosen people, are rejecting it. So the people who always consider themselves the consummate insiders now find themselves outside. And those who were rejected, the outsiders, now find themselves inside this great, brand new reality. And so Paul is, Paul is radically being transformed right before our eyes. And so is Jesus. And so is Jesus. I love this gospel. This is one of my very favorite gospels. As a kid, I hated it because I couldn't figure it out. As a kid, I used to get very, very ticked at Jesus because, well, he could do all kinds of things because he was God. And, you know, there is no doubt about that. Dogmatically, we say it as clearly as we possibly can. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We say that the, the fullness of God's divinity dwells in this, in this human being. So he is fully divine. We accept that. We, I think we have a harder time with his humanity in many ways. He's fully human. And one of the, one of the signs of being human is the ability to grow and to transcend, to broaden our horizon, to widen the picture. Today, his picture is about to be widened. Uh, Luke said it best. He grew in wisdom, age, and grace, which means his consciousness was growing as well. He was not conscious that he was the Son of God as a toddler. And that's where I thought he used to make that up. No, he had some idea that he was kind of special to the father when he was 10, but by the time he was 30, by the time he was, goes to the baptismal bath and comes out and he hears, here's your, here's your identity, you're my son, now go do your work. Of course, what was the work? Oh, his tribe was lost, the lost tribe of Israel. And so he began to proclaim the message of John, repent, turn around, metanoia. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's going to be really wonderful, but you've got to turn around. You can't do it the old way. And he's going to his own people. That's his mission. That's his mission. And then he runs into this Canaanite woman, this consummate outsider, this woman who is despised because they are not of the chosen people. She was not chosen. But she's in pain. She's in pain. So she comes to her. And it's really interesting what, he, what she says to him. She, she calls him by his title. His Jewish title. Son of David. Son of David. Have pity on me. My daughter is suffering greatly from a demon. Let me tell you something. My daughter doesn't want to suffer. My daughter wants to be happy. There isn't a mother in this congregation today who doesn't suffer when their children suffers, who isn't filled with joy when their children are filled with joy. And so she, she hears that universal reality that we really want to live. We don't want to suffer. And she's begging him for that. As a good Jew, what does he do? As an Orthodox Jew, what does he do? Doesn't talk to her. Gives her the silent treatment. Maybe she'll go away. Maybe she'll go away. She doesn't go away. Oh, the disciples come up and they say, tell her to go away. She's bothering us. She's bothering us. And then he 
gives the line. He tells her why he's not going to help her. I've only been called to the lost children of the tribe of Israel. She ain't going to let go. This woman is not going to let go. Her daughter is hurting. And, she's, and she knows that Jesus can help. He's got the power. She's experienced that. Please, Lord, I beg you. And then what does he do? He's a Semite. There's no greater insulting people than Semites, especially when they hurl them at each other. Oh, may you be infested with the fleas of a, of a, of a thousand camels, you know? What does he say to her? He's going to insult her. He's going to, I'm sorry, there's no way to soften this. This is an insult. The Son of God, the Son of Man, the human one, is now going to insult her. It is not right to take the food of the children and throw it to the dogs. He's just called her a dog. There's no way to make that pretty. And I think we do great disservice to the Lord when we try to make that pretty. But here's what's going to happen. He was fully human. He's going to grow. His consciousness is going to grow. She's going to outwit him. She's not, she is not going to leave until she gets her blessing. She is not going to leave until she gets what she, what she needs for the one that she loves. And so she comes back with this incredible response. Even the dogs eat the leftovers from the master's table. She's just undone him. His horizon is broken open. He is seeing in a way he has never seen before. Now, they're included. Now, his mission isn't just to the lost tribe of the children of, of, of Israel. Why? Because he calls her woman. You know, woman, especially in the Gospel of John, is a code word. It means humanity. Humanity. It means everyone. Oh, woman, your faith is incredible. Oh, oh let it be done according to your will. And at that moment, her, her daughter was, was healed. And so was Jesus. His consciousness was, was raised. And I know this is, this is pretty heady, but, but it basically can be summed up in a wonderful little poem by uh, Edwin Markham. What the Canaanite women did with Jesus was outwit him. He really was one step ahead of them. He learned from this woman. And Markham wrote this wonderful little poem that sums up everything we've been saying. He drew a circle and shut me out. Heretic, rebel, a thing to flout. But love and I had wit to win. We drew a circle and took him in. It's time to stop circling the wagons and start circling the world. Because that is the universal, unequivocal, absolute will of God.